Well, I, I am uh, really grateful that we have a church that, uh, where we can be real. And Adrian, I want you to know that I have messed up more times like that. Uh, I'm the king of that. So I'm the guy who... Uh, I would take a guitar solo. I'd walk out too far and my cord would unplug. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was me. So I, you know, that's all right. We're... We're not into performance around here, for sure. Um, the other thing that we're about around here is having an impact on the community. And uh, we've been seeing uh, repeatedly, as, as you all know, just the, the increase of our homelessness population. And, and certainly there's different ways that people are trying to make a difference. And one of the ways that we want to do that is by partnering with Hope 680, which is a ministry that goes and visits the, the homeless under... Uh, you know, overpasses and in various places that their encampments are at. And so uh, this coming, uh, the 16th, so it's Friday the 16th at 7 p.m., we'll be meeting downstairs in order to make lunches for that ministry. And so we've been upping our number of lunches that we're making. And so, because the turnout's been really good. So don't let me down now, people. Show up, okay? Let's do it. Let's make some lunches. And uh, there'll be opportunity also to bring supplies as needed, and, and we're, we've got those things. We're working those things out, um, but you'll have information on the back table. But just mark that date down, Friday the 16th, 7 p.m. Uh, parents, bring your kids. This is a great opportunity for kids to take part together, you know, in, in making a difference and caring for people. And uh, we can assemble lunches. We'll be writing notes uh, to the folks who are receiving these things, and, and we're going to be uh, excited to, to see God work through that. I'm grateful for last week that John uh, preached. Thank you, John, for that. It was good to be away. And um, even as we were gone, you know, we found our, uh, some time to visit with some family down south, and we were grateful for that. And I was just thinking about a conversation that, that we were having, and, and it was kind of a discussion about, the, you know, California, what's happening politically in California, the way in which the culture is just on a ma- massive downgrade, and, you know, how did it happen, and, um, you know... Uh, the loss of the educational system decades ago, that was a part of it. And there's just, you know, the people turning their backs on, on uh, different elements of truth in terms of the Judeo-Christian ethic and the way in which progressivism has just kind of, kind of taken over our, our state politically. And, and on and on the list went. And, and I was sitting there with, with them and I'm going, yes, we, you know, that's true. The things you're saying are true. I go, but I think the problem goes a little farther back than that. And they're like, yeah, what do you think? And I go, well... There was this guy named Adam and this woman named Eve, you know? And it kind of started there. <laughs> and there's been this problem called sin that's actually wrecked habit on the entire creation, all cultures, at all times, in various ways. And that is the ultimate problem. And as a result of that, we find ourselves, I think, as God's people, uh, sitting in a time when we're going, oh, things are... Things are just degrading and going downhill, and, and we're experiencing this, this cultural decline and the perversity that comes with it. And the fact is, we look at one another, and I think we all feel this way, I just don't belong around here. I don't belong here. I, I, I go into the marketplace, I don't belong here. I go to school, I don't belong here. I enter the workplace. I, I'm, I'm faced with, you know, various forms of, of, of opposition and, 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 and the twisting of things. that We, we find ourselves in this place, and it's hard. And yet, you know what? The Bible has something to say about that because there's a theme that goes throughout the pages of Scripture. And it is the idea that in this fallen world, God's people are living in exile. 
This world is not our home. And it becomes very, very clear as we examine the scriptures and we see that. And, and we need to recover this sense of what does it mean to be a believer and to live in this time, in this place, as exiles? How do we honor God as exiles in a foreign land? And for that reason, we're, we're embarking on, a, on, a, on our summer series this morning, and we're going to begin going through the book of, of Ezra. The book of Ezra. As, as God is the one who restores his people, we're going to see how God restores his people from exile and how God's plans are being carried out through his people, even as they've been in exile and as he brings them out of that. And, uh, and so as, as we embark upon this uh, through the summer, um, we want to ask that God would bless our time in his word. So would you, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we, we come to you and we, we ask that you would help us to glean from this wonderful book uh, the, the realities of what it means to be a people in exile and what it means to be restored by you. Through that, from that, and that your purposes are being fulfilled even when, when things around us uh, seem to be falling apart and going in the opposite direction that we would desire, that you would call for. And so we, we look to you now to, to guide this time that we share in your word. We pray that we would become a people who live well in exile fueled by the truth of your word, uh, given hearts that are buoyant in the gospel, in the work of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, who's returning soon. And so we pray, Lord, that you would guide us in this time and we thank you in advance for how you're going to work to change us to become the people you want us to be. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin with this series, we have to ask the question, how did the people of God end up in, in exile? What happened? And, and what happened was they were in a state of persistent idolatry and apostasy. And so because of that, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to come down under the command of Nebuchadnezzar the king and, and to take, uh, basically take over uh, the, 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 the Jewish people, and, and he, he took captives from there. So uh, there were actually three different times that the, the Jewish people were, were deported to Babylon. Uh, the, it was 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then 587 B.C. And, and during that final invasion in 587 B.C., uh, the Babylonians didn't just destroy Jerusalem's city gates. In addition to that, they, they tore down the walls, and they also completely demolished Solomon's temple. And then they took all of the items within Solomon's temple away and brought them back to Babylon. And that was kind of the common practice. When a king would come through and conquer a land, he would destroy the center of their religious worship, and then he would take various artifacts and bring them back into his temple or the temple of his God. Now, in the case of, of, of Jerusalem, they didn't have a statue of Yahweh, right? That was not a practice that they would have, but they did have all the articles that they would use within the temple uh, worship time. And so he took those. And so we find that uh, various things happened throughout those, those years. Um, the book of Daniel, for example, Daniel was taken as one of the captives to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And he, of course, lived as a, a prophet within this pagan land. He lived as a teacher. He was faithful to God. If you look at Daniel, you see a beautiful way of, to navigate through living in uh, under a, a pagan rule in a God-honoring way. And so we find that with Daniel's life. Then we also would see um, that uh, there were various other 
ways in which God was continuing to work even though his people were in exile. Uh, because there's a guy who comes up on the historical scene in the year 559 BC, and, and his name is Cyrus the Great. And, and he's, he's the king of, of Persia. What does he do? He comes through and he actually defeats Babylon. So, and God told us that, that he would do that uh, through the prophet Isaiah, through the prophet Jeremiah. We find several different times that God's saying, hey, there's this one Cyrus who's coming and he's going to, to overthrow Babylon. And, uh, and that's fascinating too, by the way, because Cyrus is actually named by name by the prophet Isaiah 200 years before he was even born. And so much, it's so, such an amazing thing to see that, that, uh, that God would do that. Um, and uh, we find that, that again, there's a, there's a way in which these prophecies are fulfilled and, and, and people look at it and they're, they're astounded when they take it in. Uh, liberal scholars will try to say, you know what? That had to be been written after the fact. <laughs> it's so accurate. Like, that couldn't have happened. Uh, but again, we've got archaeological evidence and other things that would say, no, we've, we, we would see very clearly that... Um, that this prophecy came about by God's decree. Anyway, so as we look at this, we find that we're going to be seeing how God restores his people from exile and, uh, and how all of this begins. And uh, if you would, go ahead and open to Ezra chapter 1. You'll find it on page 345. If you're using the Bible on the chair rack in front of you, it's in the Old Testament, so it's in the very first section of, of that book. And in honor of the word of God, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Ezra, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He who is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and with goods and cattle together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone in whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and put them in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shezbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. You can take your seat.
So as we go through the passage and, and, and apply it at different points, uh, we're going to be seeing one, one really huge thing that we've got to hold on to, and that is that God's people can live with joyful assurance in exile. We can live with joyful assurance in exile for several reasons. And the first one we would see is this, because first, God directs our history. God is the one who directs our history. We find that in verse 1. Again, it's, it's 539 BC. That's when Cyrus begins to, to reign over Babylon. And as the founder of the Persian Empire, he's the one that is speaking out now. And you would think, well, well okay, who's doing this? Is it Cyrus that's doing this? I mean, is Cyrus the one that's saying, hey, here I go, I'm ruling over all, and I'm going to just make this decree? Well, yeah, but notice what it says. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. That word stirred is a, is a really great word. It means to, to, to wake someone up. So you, you imagine uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe when you were in your teens, you used to do this thing called sleeping in. You remember that? I vaguely remember. It's a distant memory, but I used to do that. And then mom would come in, Chris, time to wake up. And it's like this, ah, right? And of course, it was like one in the afternoon, <laughs> you know, but... That's, that's what life was like. But you're, stir, you're awakened out of a sleep. That, that's really what this idea of stirred up means. It is to take someone who's sleeping and goes, hey, let's go, let's do this. So, so who is actually doing this? Is it Cyrus? Is it the Lord? And, and we find that, uh, yeah, it's, it's God. God is, the emphasis here is God's doing it. God's doing it. God's doing it. And he's using Cyrus. Now, this was actually a common policy of Cyrus. So he, generally speaking, when he would conquer a nation, and <laughs> he conquered a lot of them, when he would do that, he would go through and he would allow them, the people he had conquered, to worship their own gods in their own way. So it, seems, it sounds very diplomatic. And uh, we've got this, this thing, uh, you can find it uh, in the, well, with most ancient artifacts, it's in the British Museum, okay? <laughs> They're almost all there. You know, you take over half the planet, you end up with most of the stuff. That's how that works. But this is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's, it's written in, in a Babylonian cuneiform. And, well, let me read it for you right now. It's, oh, no, I can't, I can't do that. But, but when you uh, do translate it, it does describe this way in which the peoples are being released to their sacred cities, to rebuild their temples, um, to be able to, uh, you know, kind of take their worshipers and sort of refill those areas and allow them that freedom. Now you think, well, why is Cyrus doing that from his vantage point? Well, number one, unlike the Babylonians and unlike the Assyrians before him, he realized, you know, if I let people worship in their own way, I will have less revolts. So it's kind of a pragmatic thing. Uh, by the way, the Assyrians and Babylonians underwent a lot of revolts by the people that they had conquered. So in hindsight, he's kind of going, I don't, I don't want to make that mistake. The other thing is because, you know, he was a worshiper of Marduk. That would be the, the Persian god. And it was, again, he was the, the chief god of many other gods. Um, the idea would be for Nebuchadnezzar, if I can appease all the gods, including this one, you know, it's better for me. I mean, can't hurt kind of thing. So it's almost like, a, like an insurance policy in some ways. But, but here's what we find in this passage. It's a beautiful demonstration that, that God is, you know, utilizing a historical event, a time, a ruler, 
But what is he doing? He's using that person to bring about his goals. And it has no bearing on the righteousness of the person, the greatness of the ruler. God, God's working in spite of this ruler. And uh, I, I do like the, you know, the Westminster Confession puts it well. He says, God, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That's a good way to describe providence. And we would see that uh, in, in, in a lot of areas in the scriptures and in history. God is the overruling God. And, and that means he can take a tyrannical king and he can use that king for his purposes. You know, this is the Lord. Uh, he, he's, he's unknown to Cyrus in many ways, and yet he's stirring Cyrus at the same time to accomplish his work, the, the work that he had promised, again, two centuries before by the prophets. And so we find that the initiative of human beings and the sovereignty of God, these are things that work together. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. And it's an important thing to see. God doesn't violate uh, the individual's um, actual real choice and decision and activity. He's, they're not robots. And yet, though they have the free agency to carry out things as individuals, God also ensures that his will is carried out in all areas, at all times. And so we would find this, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. The key word there is all things. There's nothing that happens that isn't in accordance with his will. Uh, we find it in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you can see what's happening. You're, you're working, but supporting and undergirding that, enabling that, empowering that is God's will and work. We find it in, in the book of Genesis with Joseph after he's sold into slavery, after he undergoes all kinds of, of trial from being wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife and wrongly imprisoned and then forgotten in prison. And yet all these things are coming about. Why? Even the evil of his brother is selling him into slavery in the first place. All those things are coming about so that God would use him to preserve life. And so we find at the very end of, of that account in Genesis 50-50, what does Joseph say to his brothers? Don't fear. I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, you should fear. Because <laughs> Joseph at that time, he's now ruling over Egypt. He has power. They're coming to him for help. The very dream that he had that caused them to then throw him into that pit and sell him is now, in fact, coming to pass exactly as he said it would. And there they are standing before him. But he says, don't fear. Does not God have me in this place to preserve many lives? And he said, what you meant for evil... God meant for good. So again, you meant it for evil, and at the same time, God meant it for good. That's concurrence. They're both true at the same time. And, and uh, the most significant place we would see this, and, and, the, and the most significant moving moment, I think, for us to consider this doctrine even, would be the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, and when, when even Peter is preaching, and he describes it, what does he say? He says, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So God predetermined it, and yet you made a real decision in the real world with real consequences. 
both at the same time. And so we find God is the one who is sovereign and directs all things. Even, and he even uses evil to accomplish his good purposes. That's how good he is. He uses evil to thwart evil, to defeat evil, and to bring about his good, glorious, beautiful purposes. So God is the one that directs our history. And now the question I want to ha- ask you is, do you see that in your life? Do we see that in our lives today? God is directing our history. I feel like many times, you know, we'll, we'll say this and we'll go, yeah, God's sovereign, God rules. And then this thing happens and we're like, wait a minute. Rawr. It's like, well, time out. Like, we can't be selective. Either he's sovereign or he isn't. And if he is, how do we conduct ourselves through those times? And this happens personally with us. It happens culturally. It happens politically. It happens nationally. It happens globally. There's a lot of things happening. We, we are exiles. We see that. And yet, we're exiles right now by God's purpose. He wants us in this place at this time. And so, yeah, when, when we have laws passed in our state whereby uh, the, the, the murder of children is, is exalted as being a virtue, a moral good, we see that we're exiles, right? When, when there's a parade celebrated in our town where, where sexual perversity is upheld as a matter of pride, we realize we're living as exiles, right? But, but how do we respond to that? It's very easy for us to go, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm disgusted, I'm out of here, and we just kind of isolate ourselves in this cynical kind of bubble. But how is that carrying out God's mission for us to be salt and light? Or we can try to grab onto other ways to kind of redirect things and get control of things. We can look for political control or we can, we can look for some sort of way which we can manipulate things ourselves. But again, what are we called to be? And I would say just in light of our current, the, you know, the month we're in, the various celebrations happening in the Bay Area, um, the time of, of history that we live in, what are we called to be? Biblically, it's very simple. Salt and light, truth and love. By the way, for salt to have an effect, guess what? It has to be in the presence of things that are decaying. Or salt won't work. For light to have an effect, what does it have to do? It has to pierce the darkness. And for truth and love to really work, what does it mean? We speak the truth. We don't lie to people. We don't, we don't you know, say, oh, way to go, way to exert your independence. That's, that's not going to help anybody. We, we, we call people to repentance. Why? Because we look in the mirror and we call ourselves to repentance. The Christian life is living a life of repentance before God. So we're calling everybody to join us in repenting from sin. And yet there's hope. Why? Because Jesus came. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. And he died in the place of sinners. And no, it's not just sinners like them. 
It's sinners like you and me. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need a righteousness that is not ours. And that's what we receive in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never received that gift of grace, call on him, turn to him, confess your sin to him and receive that gift of salvation. You can have your sins cast away from you in the depths of the sea to never return. I think it's important that we understand that God directs our history and in doing so, we understand that really our history only has meaning under his story. Our history only has meaning under his story. He's the one orchestrating all things. He's the one bringing his appointed end, which is really his appointed beginning because he's making all things new. So God's people can live with joyful assurance in exile, not only because God directs our history, but also because God keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. He will never fail in any promise. And that's really the explanation of what's happening here in 538 B.C., because, again, Cyrus thinks it's him. Cyrus thinks this is my enlightened policy of, rep, you know, kind of keeping people at peace, giving them more freedom. But really, this is the promise that God made to his people years before. One of them is found in Jeremiah 25. Go ahead and turn there if you would. Jeremiah 25. And again, two centuries before these events. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror of these nations and will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. That's what happened. And then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord. For their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. Then you flip over to chapter 29, verse 10. And he says it again. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. That is a, a stunning promise that God made. And then we find, again, Isaiah would prophesy about Cyrus, my servant. <laughs> my servant Cyrus is going to accomplish these things. What are the odds of that, by the way, that the name Cyrus would be the name of the one who would come in? I'm not a math person. You math people, can you just throw me the number? It's like, what, 8,000 million to one or something? I don't know. But God did not forget his promise to save his people. And here's the other thing. This actually goes back farther to an even earlier promise that God made. Back in, in, in Genesis chapter 3. When God declares that I am sending this one, this one born of a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, the devil. And, and really all of these things are bring, bring, being brought about so that the Messiah would be born. 
that the Messiah would come. And this really, Ezra, Nehemiah, that section of Scripture is the last historical event that we have prior to, in, recorded in Scripture, prior to Jesus' coming. So Matthew 1. So we need to have a biblical view of, of God's keeping his promises. And we need to see that personally, but we also need to see that historically. And we also need to see that whatever is happening currently in our culture and current events and everything else, we can't let those things blind us to the fact that God is still at work to bring about his appointed end. God always fulfills his promises. He didn't forget his promise to save his people, even as they were being taken away to Babylon in those three different exiles. But how hard would that be for those people to see that in that moment? Can you imagine that? You're being taken from your home. It it would be like, okay, this is going to sound really far-fetched, but I'm just going to go for it because they're a neighbor. It'd be like Canada invading the U.S. I know. But just imagine it. By the way, if you're Canadian, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm sorry. Okay, but... The northern border just hasn't been considered a big threat for a really long time. Okay, so Canada invades. And now you are taken from your home and you are brought to Toronto. Okay, you've got to live in Toronto. What's that like? You don't have your own place. You're not around your town, your city. You're not around the people that you love. You're just, you've you've been removed. You're enslaved. You essentially work for a bunch of cruel Canadians. Again, I, I know it's a... <laughs> they're the nicest people you can meet, probably. I, I know. Okay. But you get what I'm saying. Try to put yourself in that position. That, that would be a very difficult thing. And yet, as you're being taken across, you know, all these miles and being trucked off to that place, are you thinking, is, in your mind, God always keeps his promises? <laughs> That'd be hard. It's hard to remember that God always keeps his promises when you're living in exile. How about your personal life right now? What's going on? What direction are things going? Where where are the places where you're feeling afraid, that you're feeling disappointed, discouraged, fearful? Maybe uh, there's something that you're facing you've never had to face before in your whole life. You need to know something right now. I can tell you this with full assurance. God always keeps his promises. Hold on to him. There was a purpose for the exile. It wasn't just a consequence of their sin. God was using it to actually restore them. whatever's happening in your life right now, if you are a child of God, if you've come to Jesus by faith, if you've trusted him, know this. Whatever you're going through right now, God is using it to restore you. Do you see that? God keeps his promises. In Christ, we have even greater promises than they had. What what are we told? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
God's more committed to bringing you safely home to him than you are if you're a Christian. God's more committed to your growth than you are. God's more committed to you knowing him in a deeper way than you are. As a result of that, God's more committed to you living in the fullness of life in him. That, that, that blessed life described in the Beatitudes. He's more committed to that than you are. And he will bring it to pass. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you feeling beaten down by your sin right now? This is a promise. Turn to him, confess to him, agree with him that that's sin. He's faithful to forgive you. That passage tells us in 1 John. He's faithful to forgive you, but he's also just to forgive you because Jesus actually paid for that on the cross. His promises include the fact that you've been chosen by God, that that you've received the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, that you've been redeemed from the slave market of sin. His promises tell you that, that he's coming back soon and that you have an inheritance in him. And there's many more. So do you see that? Turn to him. Trust him. God's people can live with joyful assurance in exile because God directs our history. God keeps his promises. And also because God keeps his people. It's fascinating. Look at verse 5. The heads of the fathers in the houses of Judah and Benjamin, interestingly, those are the tribes of the southern kingdoms after the, the, the kingdom divided. And the priests and Levites, they arose. And notice this, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. Huh, same word. Same word as where? Well, back at verse 1. God stirred up Cyrus. Well, now God's stirring up the people. It's God's spirit doing the stirring. He's the one that's saying, go rebuild. Go back to, to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And that must have been really hard. Now again, I know my feeble analogy about Canada is there, but could you imagine being you know, away for 70 years and now it's time to go back? Nothing's been upkept for 70 years. It's a mess. And you show up. What's that like? There's heartache. Most had no homes. They had no property in the city. Nothing they could call their own. It, it might be that there were some who remained in Jerusalem. Maybe they could stay with them, but it was, a, it was a shell of what it used to be. There would probably be family there of those who remained that the exiles had never met. Matter of fact, many of those in exile, if not most, had never experienced temple worship before. They had no idea what it was like. Those that had been born after the Babylonian invasion would just have had stories, perhaps, that were told. And, and the faith that was kept alive in exile would have been handed down through families. 
But you know what the beautiful thing is? The faith had been kept alive. I don't know how to bring forward the, the, the way in which the culture of both Babylon and Persia were diametrically opposed to God's purposes. Throughout history, there have been various empires that have been against God, anti-God, wicked at their core. These are certainly in the top five. And yet, there's a preservation. Why? Again, because God is the one who keeps his people. There's a remnant. There's, there are some who are still there. They've been kept alive. And their faith in Yahweh had been kept alive. Now, what's interesting also is to see that as Cyrus makes this declaration, we find that not everybody wants to go back. Isn't that interesting? And the text doesn't actually say, and that's because they are losers, right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't make that evaluation of them. But it also doesn't say anything great about them either, right? It's kind of ambivalent. Like, some, not everybody wanted to go. And you're asking, well, why? Why would that be? Very likely, they were used to living in exile, and they kind of started liking it. They didn't want to go back. It was comfortable. And so find a, you know, as, as uh, this remnant goes back, even those who didn't want to return, they were commissioned to contribute to the effort to go back. And that's why you see there's gold provided, there's livestock, there are other things that are given to those who are, who are returning. And we would see language here very similar to something else that happened previously in Israel's history. And that would be the Exodus. If you recall, when they left Egypt, what happened? The peoples of Egypt actually gave them goods and gold and materials to leave. And so we would see this as, as in many ways, a second Exodus in some ways. They're going out from Babylon in the same way that the people went out from Egypt. And then they're going back to the land, the same place they were going when they left Egypt. But now it's to reestablish the temple. But, but God is keep, has kept his people, and it's an amazing thing to, to see. And, and the encouragement and, and the way in which that would feel. You know, we're about to leave. There's not as many of us here that we'd like to have, but there's plenty of provision and they go back. Um, the final thing we would see, not only does, can God's people live in joyful assurance in exile because God directs our history and God keeps his promises and God keeps his people, but lastly, because God restores those who repent. That's what's happening here. They, the people in exile, they're now returning. They are going back to the place they were taken from. And you kind of wonder about verses 7 and following. What's the big deal with all the dishes? <laughs> you know, why, why? Why is there this massive kind of emphasis on the articles that belong to the temple of God? And, and some have said, well, because God cares about the little things. It's like, well, no, they aren't little things. I'm sorry, but when's the last time you walked around with a bunch of gold and silver dishes numbering to 5,400 articles? You know, it's a lot. No, what this is really is it's a reversal. In the way that Nebuchadnezzar came and, and in the temple, he took away all those articles and brought them away to Babylon to be in his house for his gods. 
Now God, the real God, is now taking those things and saying, nope, they're going back to where they belong. And several people are being used in that, in that effort. One is this Shez Bazaar. And we, we don't really know much about this person. It's possible that it's a title and not a name. It's also possible that he's a political appointee of, of, of Cyrus and he kind of oversees the area of Judah. We're not really sure. Uh, but then the other one is uh, this uh, Mith, Mithridath. He's, he's the treasurer. And so he's, he's the one that's there to kind of keep track of things. And Cyrus has said to him, hey, you need to um, you know, count out everything and, and document it. So all this is being documented. It's all, I guess, legal from the, from the standpoint of Cyrus. But again, it's God who's at work through it to restore and so we find the beginnings of the restoration of worship for the Israelites. And, and what's happening is they're now coming in this, out of this, they've been, in, they've been in exile and they've been punished for their sin, for their idolatry, for their turning away from God. And now in this time of repentance, they've now seen that and they're going back now to rebuild what they've lost. And that's, that's something for us to consider. Are you living a life of Repentance. Are you turning away from sin, turning toward God? And are you doing so, resting in the hope of this one who's going to come, the one who's going to come about through the line of Judah, the Messiah, the King, the real restorer? This is all pointing ahead to him. And when we think about it this way, you know, the disobedience of God's people actually caused the exile. But what did Jesus do? He came and obeyed God. And the obedience of Christ actually caused his exile from the Father. Right? The reverse. And, and we find that the disobedience of God's people brought separation from God, whereas the obedience of Christ reunites us to God. And so all of this points ahead to the one who would be the actual restorer of worship to God through himself, through his own sacrifice. And all those sacrifices that will be made in that temple will again point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in the midst of exile, can we live with joyful assurance? Let's remember, God directs our history. God keeps his promises God keeps his people and God restores those who repent. And so as we live in exile now and as we go through this book to find out more, let's learn how to live through this time in a way that demonstrates who God really is and what he's doing now in our lives and in the community that we live in. That the gospel will be brought forward that more would come to Trust in and know the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to apply the beauty of your work throughout history. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who restores those who repent. And so as we even come to this time of celebrating your table, may we trust in Jesus and turn to him again 
and forsake all those other things that try to pull us away. May you be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to this time of the Lord's table, I'd encourage you, go ahead and open your bulletin. You'll find a, a, a little sheet of paper in there with prayers and other things that you can use to direct your heart. But I'd like to just consider that for a moment, how the disobedience of God's people caused the exile, but the obedience of Christ caused his exile from the Father. So Jesus voluntarily on the cross was forsaken by God so that all who would trust in him would not be forsaken. And so the Lord's table is a time for us to remember that loving, merciful, holy, and obedient act that Jesus took voluntarily carried out to rescue sinners like us. And so let's, in this time, let's go before the Lord in prayer and let's confess our sin to him. Maybe, maybe we find ourselves not living aware of, of, of the fact that we're in exile. Maybe, maybe we've been pulled off into various other hopes. And this would be a time to, to bring those things to him. But let's just silently go before God in prayer and, and confess to him. Lord, we, we confess to you the ways that we very easily can find ourselves grasping at hope that isn't hope, living for things that are not worth living for. The idols of our heart clamor for attention and, and so we confess to you, Lord, the ways that we are deceived and, and are even pulled into places where we're not resting in you or seeking you or trusting you. We ask that you forgive us for forgetting that you are the one that directs our history. We start thinking that it's just random events that happen to us. Or we confess to you that we forget that you keep your promises and you keep your people. So we pray that in this time, as we confess these things to you, that we remember again the cross, again the worst evil ever brought about in the entire history of the universe, the murder of the innocent Son of God. And yet, in your power, you brought about the greatest good that could ever happen, the salvation of sinners like us by your grace. So Lord, help us to see you even in this time as we remember that when you were betrayed, you took bread and you gave thanks and you broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's take together. As we partake of the cup, let's look at Christ. Let's take in all that he's done and who he is, and let's rejoice. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's coming back soon. 
Let's allow our hearts. I, I do love that phrase, to be stirred up. Cyrus was stirred up. The Spirit of God stirred up the people of God. You know what, Lord? Stir us up. May we rejoice because he really has risen. The debt is paid in full. And we now look forward to his return and making all things new. And when he had given thanks, in the same way he took cup, the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take together.